Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose, and I've got a pretty good imagination. But today, our guest on the podcast is someone who manages to combine their imagination with science. I'm talking about Brady Johnston. Brady is a PhD candidate who's passionate about making viruses visually appealing. He joined the Particle Podcast to talk about genetics, cool machines, and doing arts and crafts in science. Well, welcome to the podcast, Brady. Uh, It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. To start off with, I'm going to say it again, as always, what do you actually do? Um, Great question. Uh, (laughs) It can be... It's sort of like a niche of a niche of a niche. Okay. The technical name is structural biologist. Oh. Um, which basically means figuring out uh, what things look like uh, of biological s- molecules and okay. things that are basically far too small to see with visible light. And so there's all sorts of experiments and cool things you'd need to do to figure out what it looks like. Uh, and so that's the field of structural biology. That is really cool. And it is genuinely very niche. I've never heard of that. Yes. Uh, it's, I mean, it's very niche and you've probably never heard of it, but there's been a lot of Nobel Prizes awarded in the field of structural biology. Oh. Yeah. And there's like, yeah, like people have been knighted and uh, damed in the field of structural biology. It's very niche, but it's very, very important for drug discovery, disease, all sorts of stuff. I had no idea. Why, like, how is it important if we don't know about it? Well, most, I suppose you don't know about it because it's because of our niche and I suppose complex it is. But when you're trying to understand a disease or let's say so with diabetes, so uh, insulin is involved in diabetes, um, the crystal structure is what we sort of call it of what it looks like. Uh, insulin was discovered back in, I think, the 60s mm. or so. Um, and it was one of the first biological uh, molecules to be uh, to get the crystal structure of. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we sort of know what it looks like, we can design drugs that uh, mimic its effects uh, and all sorts of things. So you can develop all sorts of treatments around diabetes or various other diseases once you know what something looks like rather than throwing every drug we possibly know of at a disease until we find something that works. You can do it more intuitively. So you can be like, oh, it sort of looks like this. We have a drug that looks like this. They, sh- they should fit together. And yeah, the only way you know how to do that is through structural biology because things are too small to see, basically. So they really have to fit together. Yes. Yeah. So biology is very squishy and wet and gross. But when you get very, very small into the cellular level, things stop being squishy and it's much more like Lego and tiny little machines and scissors and this and that. And things just fit together one way or another. And yeah, so a drug will work on something because it just fits nicely into the uh, little pocket on the side. So That's so cool. It's, it's a very cool field to be in, yeah. Kind of like, satisfying. Very, very, very satisfying, yes, yeah. If it's so niche, how did you end up getting into it? I sp- so I started uh, down, I suppose, my path in uni just being like, oh, I did well in school, I want to be a doctor. Like oh, wow. basically anyone else, well, a lot of people who do well in school go on to be like, oh, doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so studying biology in university, I came out of a lecture one day just being like mind blown moment, being like, oh my God, you know, this lecturer has just described this complex thing and this is going on inside my cells right now. This is really, really cool, really interesting. 
I would like to do more of it. And so I kept doing biochemistry. And so I got my degree in biochemistry. And then uh, one of the people in my building, my current supervisor, Professor uh, Charlie Bond, uh, I started doing work in his lab. And I just kept working in his lab and doing honors and now PhD. And so that's like how I sort of, the path I went down, but I got started in it just being like, wow, this is really cool. Like yeah. seeing a cool animation of how like DNA is replicated or made or, um, yeah. And so that's how it all sort of got started. And where does it generally fit in with other research? So we talked about like insulin, but where does it, where, what other areas can it help? I mean, when you want to basically understand any sort of disease, so say cancer is a big one. So um, if you're trying to understand a certain type of cancer, you know, where do you start? So quite often people do all sorts of studies and be and find a gene that's involved and be like, okay, this gene uh, is involved in this cancer. But, you know, when you sort of say it's involved, what is it actually doing? And the only way to sort of figure that out is to be, okay, what the gene will make a protein and what does that protein look like and what is it doing in the cell? What else is it interacting with? Um, and once you can sort of figure that out, you can be like, okay, it's doing this. We can target it with this drug to make it do something else. Or we sort of holistically know how that disease is actually functioning. In the case of uh, our current situation, so the coronavirus, um, we sort of know what it looks like because we can do all this structural biology uh, and sort of figure out different parts of it and be like, okay, we can probably try and target these drugs against it because we know what it looks like. Mm. Or we can try and create these antibodies or these treatments because we know what these things look like. Whereas, you know, say the 1918 flu pandemic, we knew it was a disease, but we knew nothing else about it. Yeah. Interesting. Is it quite a new area or does it actually go back quite far? I would say it's probably relatively new. So it's only really in the 20th century did it start becoming a thing. Um, back in the very early 20th century, when we sort of started discovering X-rays and working with X-rays, um, uh, an Australian actually, Francis Bragg, I'm fairly sure I got that name right, um, won the Nobel Prize for uh, the Bragg equation, which is discovering how various X-rays and things work. But it's really only after the discovery of x-rays and how we can use them to study uh, various things did it really start becoming a field mm -hmm. and so it's really only you know a hundred or so years old as a field and it's only really once we've started getting computers and lots of computing power that we've been able to deal with lots of information that comes from it whereas before you were taking an actual photograph and building models by hand and and I could never do that. Like, I'm not that skilled. Um, <laughs> the computer does most of the work for me now. So That's crazy. It'd be kind of cool, though, to build it, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. And you see in, like, science museums and buildings and stuff where they'll have one of these old models. And ah. it's, like, it's very, very cool. You can sort of, like, walk in amongst it. Uh, and, you know, that's how they originally built it. And so, say, with insulin, that's you got all these photographs and then did lots of very complicated math by hand. And then... Uh, you can build a sort of wooden stick model um, and you can be like, this is what it looks like. These are where all the atoms are. We know what insulin looks like now. So That's sick. It's like arts and crafts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, a lot of science is very arts and crafts. I spent yeah. a lot of my time 
cutting things up and gluing them into my lab book and all sorts of things. So (laughs) it's very arts and crafts. I like how you can be at PhD level, but still still gluing and sticking things in the book. Yep, and drawing little diagrams, cutting things out, gluing it in, all that sort of stuff. With the kind of visualisation process, the shapes and things that the, say, virus or disease or whatever ends up looking like, is that the physical shape it actually is or is it like a representation of somehow we can understand it? So it's, I suppose, somewhere in between. It's mostly, so it depends on how you're choosing to represent something. So with technology like x-ray crystallography, which is sort of the main one that we use, you basically, you get information about where the atoms are. So you can be very, very confident in this is where all of the atoms are. Now, how you choose to then represent that um, is the difficult part. Using color and stuff on this scale is meaningless, Ah. basically. So because things are, um, because we're getting on the scale that things are a lot smaller than visible light, we, using color to represent things is sort of, twisting the truth a little because things don't really have color Mm. there's a you can go down that path a whole bunch but essentially color is meaningless at this scale and so you can choose to represent um spheres where atoms are but really that's a confusing mess um and so you structural biologists will use like different sort of cartoon representations which are um not necessarily what it looks like but a representation of the underlying atomic data Um, or the one of the more common ones is what's known as the surface representation so if you have um, you know a cube that's full of atoms really the only important part is the surface of the cube because you're not going to interact with the atoms in the middle yes okay Um, and so quite often you'll see a surface representation so if you've seen images and stuff of the coronavirus uh, like the spikes on the on the periphery those will be the surface representation. So we know where the atoms are in amongst it, um, and we're sort of representing it by just showing the surface. Mm. Um, But, yeah, in terms of colour, texture, those are sort of little um, artistic choices that are used to represent it. Really, they wouldn't necessarily have a texture or a colour. I've really wanted to know that for a while. (laughs) Specifically... I'm interested in your opinion on this. So during the height of the pandemic, at least in, you know, from WA's perspective, we're very lucky, et cetera. But watching the news and stuff, when they had images of the virus as such, and it was always like red and scary and doomsday. So that's a choice by whoever's made that image to make it look that way to convey a message. Yes. Yeah. So that's very correct. Like I sort of said, the colour isn't necessarily representative, so these things are too small for colour to be meaningful. But if you're trying to represent something, you make choices about how much detail you show and how you represent it. So, yeah, quite often one of the more famous images came out of the CDC um, in America, and so that was one of the early images of, quote-unquote, images Mm. of the coronavirus, and it's red and grey, and those are, yes, artistic choices. So they wanted to convey, you know, the urgency and the um, the actual legitimacy of the threat. And so red sort of imposing and grey and sort of textured. And so 
they wanted it to be something that you perceived as real and that as a real threat to take seriously. And so, yeah, the red and the greys um, are artistic choices. There are some sort of uh, people who work with this data who only represent things in black and white because okay. they think you shouldn't add colour where there isn't. But uh, I don't necessarily agree with that because it, it just adds this whole other dimension of ultimately you're representing things anyway that you can't necessarily see. We're confident in what they quote-unquote look like. Um, and so how you choose to represent it is all about what sort of information you want to convey. And so colour plays a big part in that. Are there any choices that are made when representing a particular virus or maybe a biological compound or something to show it looks... Like, if you want to show something that was good, like a good thing, what kind of... Maybe just you personally, what kind of colours would you pick? Um, a favourite of mine is, like, very pastel-y washed-out colours. Um, so blues and yellows and greens, but a very sort of faint... Uh, pastel-y colours. Those are definitely my favourite. Like, lots of light in the scene. Um, obviously, that adds, you know, sort of fun uh, and with sort of at the opposite of those saturated and darker sort of colours. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And so texture is, uh, again, as well, that you can sort of have sort of softish looking textures rather than sort of hard gravelly textures. So it's, it's all sort of these visual things that you can choose. We obviously consider it a science because you are a scientist. Uh, you're doing your PhD in science. We've got that bit. But do you think it's also a bit of an art? Uh, very much so. Yeah. So, I mean, the classic pop culture division of art versus science is, I think, one of the worst things to have come out of this um, sort of pop culture thing. The Except for the band. Uh, yeah, <laughs> except for the band, obviously. <laughs> um, but the like to be a good scientist, anyone can be trained to, um, you know, pour one chemical into another and then record the results. Like anyone can do that. What it requires to be a good scientist is to, you know, do reliable science, but then take the information and be creative with it and be like, oh, I have this really strange result. What could possibly be causing it? Mm. I think back to, you know, 100, 200 years ago when no one knew about DNA, no one knew about proteins or anything like that, and people were trying to make sense of this crazy world and this crazy results that they're getting. And you need to be very creative to come up with these, like, new theories and then test them. And so, like, my, one, one thing that my supervisor says is one of the most important things of being a scientist is being creative to come up with new experiments and new potential uh, theories and explanations. And so I think it's very beneficial to do sort of the more artistic side of things where you represent various data in visually appealing ways. And it's also super important for the communication of it as well because it's all well and good to do a bunch of science and tell no one about it, but ultimately, like, what have you done that science for unless you're communicating that uh, more broadly? In between scientists, you know, we write very dry, boring journal articles to each other that convey a lot of information at once. And while we might read that and enjoy that, well, enjoy is maybe a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> we might read that and uh, find it effective to communicate with each other. There's, you know, billions of other people on the planet who should also know a lot of the information that we're finding out. And without 
visually uh, engaging and just generally engaging uh, science communication, then there's ultimately like a failing on the science part. And so there should be definitely a lot more effort, I suppose, in science communication departments, like creating them and also just scientists in general. Um, there's a, a book that I read, uh, I can't remember the author's name, but it's uh, titled Don't Be Such a Scientist which is a very good book. And yeah, the basic sort of thing in that was, you know, stop being so dry and boring and mm. like be more interesting. And scientists, you know, one of our jobs should be communicating it. And so we should be trained in how to give talks to people and how to create interesting visualizations of the work you do uh, rather than this sort of idea of, you know, this dry, boring scientist who sits in a lab who does nothing artistic uh, in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because that really touches on something that we've talked about in the particle team a few times. Often when I've been interviewing people on the podcast, science communication has come up mm. and it seems that more scientists are thinking they want to express their research and that is a fantastic answer that you've just said, which is because like, what's the point? Yes, yeah. If you don't tell people. Yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, ultimately, so I work off grant money and currently my scholarship is through the government. So essentially every scientist is, um, you know, our boss is the general public yeah. because we, they pay taxes and that pays our salary. And so ultimately, you know, we're beholden to passing that information back on. Um, and yeah, it's definitely, you know, in the past, science has been like, oh, it does its own thing in the ivory tower and maybe you get an innovation every now and then. But I think there's a growing, um, like a growing movement towards more and more science communication and the importance of it. I mean, you can just look at, I suppose, uh, a lot of the growth of conspiracy theories uh, yeah. recently as to the failings yeah. of that. And so we don't take, um, you know, scientists hide away and do their science and then you're not constantly engaging the public while they're going to think all manner of things. Yeah. So. Very, very true. Oh, what a fantastic answer. What you study is obviously quite complex, to say the least. It does have a lot of complexities, yes. And a lot of big words. It um, does, yes. I was a little bit intimidated uh, asking questions about this topic. But so with that in mind... How do people react at like a dinner party or maybe you've gone out to a bar and you're telling someone what you do? Do you even bother trying to explain? Uh, it varies a lot yeah. <laughs> about how much energy I have at the time. Yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, I'll quite often ask, oh, okay, how much biology knowledge do you have? And mm. I feel rude asking it sometimes. But like you're tired. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, quite often it'll be like, I'll... It'll be like, okay, I'm a structural biologist, mm -hmm. but you know that's a meaningless term to mm -hmm. the majority of people, and so it requires a lot of clarification. Um, quite often, I'll just say I'm a scientist. I just research things. Um, <laughs> but I suppose the the best like summary version of it would be just I find out. Uh, well, we as structural biologists find out um, what things look like when they're too small to see. That's cool. That's a very good explanation. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Do people think it's cool? Usually, yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the main um, pieces of equipment we get to use is called a, uh, a synchrotron. Um, so we use in particular the Australian synchrotron, and so synchrotrons 
it it's a very sci-fi word yes um it is basically a large x-ray generator large x-ray generator the australian synchrotron is about the size of a city block over in melbourne what um and so yeah so you need to um if you've thought uh if you've know of the large hadron collider like think big ring kilometers long all that sort of thing um it's not quite the same uh piece of equipment as the large hadron collider but it's it looks similar in that it's a very large ring um and you accelerate electrons very very fast and when you uh, force them to change their direction they'll quite often emit x-rays or various other kinds of radiation um and so we use that to do in our experiments all the time and basically we use that because it's very very powerful and it generates a lot of Mm x-rays and so it just makes our experiments a lot faster and makes a whole bunch of things possible and so we ship samples over there quite regularly as we record this people in my lab are um, controlling it remotely and like pressing a button to shoot x-rays and their oh, little cool. samples and stuff. So Have you ever gotten to go and see yes. it? Yeah, so quite a few experiments we get to fly over. Oh. They have like little accommodation where the scientists stay. Um, but it's it can be quite grueling because, you know, something like this is very in high demand by a lot of scientists from all over the world use, these experiment, uh, use this equipment. And so you'll get 24-hour allotments. Wow. And so basically you plan far more experiments than you could possibly fit in a 24-hour period and you just stay up for 24 hours doing non-stop (laughs) science um, until you run out of time, until the next group comes in. And so, yeah, you just, there's a coffee room and every couple of hours you just go get another coffee and, you know, you're 20 hours into shooting things with x-rays and you've forgotten what day it is and what's this and you're just still, you know, prepping your samples, putting them in, shooting x-rays, prepping your samples. It's, it's quite uh, grueling, but it's a, also a very fun experience. That's so funny. To do a like, 24-hour marathon of science. That's sick. <laughs> it's, really, it's really cool, yeah. The facility is really, really, really cool as well. So. Okay. I think I think people think your job's cool now. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> how do people... I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how do people name genes? I'm not sure. I think there's more standardised conventions and stuff now. So there'll always be like a boring quote unquote name for it. Uh, and it's usually like the location on the genome, the location on which particular chromosome, um, uh, all those sorts of things. And so it'll have some barcode style number. Uh, but if it's being discovered or sort of characterized for the first time, basically in science, if you just start calling something, something, that's its name. And so <laughs> um, you'll quite often get, if you have two groups that are working on a similar thing, they'll both sort of come up with their own name Ooh. and keep using their own name in their papers until one of them gives up or until, <laughs> until the broader community adopts one name or the other. And so there's quite a lot of names, you know, like there's a Sonic the Hedgehog gene. Wait, really? Yes. Uh, what does it do? What's it um, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's vaguely related to some sort of gene regulation in terms of uh expression i think it's uh involved in a few different cancers actually but it's a bizarre bow to draw yeah i mean people will come up with a funny sort of or strange name that they sort of come up reverse engineer the acronym from yeah yeah acronym so people will do that all the time in science for genes and proteins and all sorts of things um one in undergrad so this is a 
proteins. There's a protein kinase, and then there's a protein kinase kinase, and there's a protein kinase kinase kinase. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're sort of like ridiculous names, but at the same time, I like those particular yeah, ones because it's yeah. like okay, the kinase works on the kinase kinase on the kinase kinase kinase. True, so. it is self-explanatory, and I like that. Yeah, I always liked in botany how. If you could just understand Latin, you could very easily identify plants because it was just like... Just des describing what it is. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very straightforward. Yeah. I'm very glad that most plants have been named and we don't have the same situation as that because yep. when we used to collect uh, samples, my friends in particular are quite guilty of this, you'd end up calling them like cute pink small flower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like not work well yes. at all. <laughs> What are some of the misconceptions of your work, whether that be of the industry itself, maybe it's something that people get wrong when they start talking to you, maybe it's something I get wrong, or of biovisualization in general? I suppose a lot of the jargon that we use um, has been, I mean, a lot of it's been like co-opted by sci-fi and stuff, uh, but I suppose a lot of it, that we use has other meanings in like the general population. And so a common one that we use all the time is cloning. So, mm. you know, I'll clone things a couple of times a week. In that is so cool. By <laughs> <the way. That laughs> well, like, it sounds, flex. it sounds very, it sounds very cool. Um, but it, cloning uh, in the popular sort of science uh, jargon sort of means you're taking an organism and making an exact copy of it. Whereas, with us, when we're cloning, we're basically taking a little bit of DNA out of somewhere and putting it somewhere else. Okay. And so, I mean, that's still actually a pretty cool it thing is. to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like, it means like a completely different thing. Uh, and so you get these sort of things that, you know, you'll quite often see people will quote like a scientific paper and be like, look what they've done. They've cloned this and this. Uh, and so people who are maybe like anti-science or something yeah. will quite often take this jargon that we use that means something different and then misinterpret it and portray it as something else. And so it's very frustrating when that sort of stuff happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you feel about, there are a lot of people who oppose, for example, genetically modified crops and things like that. How would you go about talking to someone who's opposed to that kind of thing, assuming you uh, okay with it because you just said yes. you can do things within DNA. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've, so I've, I get people ask this, me this sort of thing a lot yeah. when they're like, oh, you know, you work with DNA and stuff. What about GMOs? Um, it's like the one thing that's filtered into mainstream yes, knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, GMO, I could talk for hours on this sort of thing, but I'm very pro it because it's one of the only ways that we're really going to be able to feed the global population in years to come. The idea of a GMO is in sort of, again, the popular science sort of idea is kind of like a scary thing. It's like, oh, you change a bit of the DNA and now it has legs and it's running after people <laughs> or something. Cops have come um, with legs. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, biology, in the sort of biological sense, it's, it's never, I suppose, that simple. Um, and whenever we sort of uh, genetically modify something, we'll usually make a very um, simple change and it'll be one protein uh, in an organism that otherwise has like millions of proteins. And so 
in quite a lot of GMO plants, you'll maybe insert a gene that this plant can now produce more of a particular vitamin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it you know, helps with nutritional deficiencies and now you have a GMO plant. That same sort of effect can be achieved by selectively breeding plants over years and years. And that's exactly what we've done with you know, all of our staple crops at the moment is just selectively breeding them. So we've changed their DNA from what it was when it was native. Uh, we've just done it over a far more slower process and in a far more or less precise way because, you know, you just need to look at, say, dogs, selective breeding of dogs. Again, we've, we've changed their uh, genetic makeup through selective breeding and there's various traits that come along with a dog. So, you know, maybe you've made a very small dog but it has trouble breathing uh, and all that sort of stuff. So there's things that come along for the ride that happen when you selectively breed stuff that you can hopefully avoid in genetic uh, engineering. And so it's less scary than I think a lot of the media, like or like a lot of popular media, like movies and stuff make it out to be. You're never gonna have you know, some mega organism that can change form and then quickly you know, repair its DNA and all this sort of stuff. It's, biology's a lot slower than that yeah. and far less exciting than that. Um, Science hasn't gotten that good yet. No. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're not quite there, but it's it's not to be feared. Obviously, we want to take our time, and that's why we have you know thousands of people around the world researching all the time to just try and make sure um, things are effective, things are safe before we sort of start moving forward. But really, if we want to m- maintain our population or an increasing population, we need to improve our ability to produce food, and so genetic engineering is one of the only ways to do that. Does it ever blow your mind that you work in like that field? Cause that's so cool to you edit the very, very structure of something that makes something it, you know, like do you ever catch yourself being amazed by it? Yeah, I, I do. Like it's, it becomes very routine a yeah, lot of the yeah. time and it's like, oh, you know, I add this enzyme which cuts up DNA at these two exact places and then I do this and do that and I'm like whatever, I just routinely do it. But yeah, every now and then I'll like, I'm, you know, uh, doing one experiment or another and it's like, I just took some DNA from here and put it into this bacteria and now this bacteria is going to do exactly what I want it to wow. do because I gave it the particular instruction and it is, and you know, I'll be s- sitting there on my computer with this you know, wall of text of basically A's, G's, C's and T's and like copying and pasting one thing and another and sending it off to a company that'll make it for me. And wow. my roommate will be like, you know, like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, making some jeans. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you, you sort of forget about it, but it is a very, very cool uh, field to be working in uh, yeah. and doing all this sort of stuff. So, And I mean, I guess it's kind of a little bit of a step back, but what does kind of a typical, I mean, maybe a typical days have probably changed now because of um, COVID kind of restrictions, but what does working in your field look like from like a day-to-day perspective? The sort of day-to-day, I suppose, um, you know, arrive in the morning and there'll be, there'll always be like uh, reports and stuff to write. And so some writing or that sort of thing, but most experiments that we do will usually take 
several days and so I do a lot of growing of bacteria so you need to you know put some bacteria on to grow overnight so you check them the next morning uh, and then where do you like put them when you're growing them uh, that's weird we, we, <laughs> so we we usually grow them in a in a flask so it's like a two liter glass tri uh, sort of pyramid shaped uh, thing and you just put them in there with um, some water some yeast extract and so a couple other things so it's basically sort of, it, it smells a bit like beer uh-huh. and it's just sort of like nutrient rich water and yeah. you put them in there and you put them in a, a shaking incubator that at 37 degrees so it just keeps them warm and it shakes it to keep it aerated so they yeah. have lots of oxygen uh, and yeah you just leave them there overnight and That's they sick. they grow um, and so I'll check them in the morning and be like okay they've done the thing and so I'll uh, centrifuge them so spin them around really fast and then pour off the water and they're all at the bottom and then I'll freeze them away uh, and yeah so like other experiments where you're cloning um, and so again you'll take you know two separate bits of DNA and you add some enzymes and put them together and put them into some bacteria and so you, you'll have a couple of experiments to run throughout the day but then you, you know you've got some writing to do you got to write up a report or me currently writing my thesis mm. um, so it'll be sort of there'll be like an experiment where you put something on wait an hour and go do some writing or have a coffee uh, and then you go back to the experiment and you set up the next part of it and you go back and do some writing and so the, the typical day is you know a few hours in the office and a few hours at the bench doing one thing or another and sort of checking on experiments that might run overnight or over several weeks that's yeah that's proper proper lab work that's like almost cartoon scientist yeah (laughs) yeah it is i haven't really i suppose i haven't really thought about it that way but you you are making me think about it like yeah it is like proper yeah proper science you know yeah that makes sense you do a bit of kind of i guess teaching yourself helping people you just said you were you said earlier before we started about doing a bit of youtube to try to teach other people how to do what you do yes why did you decide to do that why are you giving away all your secrets, <laughs> why giving away my <laughs> secrets? well basically so i started the idea behind getting into visualization stuff that i do was um in science you go to conferences and so when you go to a conference you know especially as a student you'll have a poster and you'll be in a room with 100 200 at the big conferences like several hundred to several thousand people in a big conference room uh, and you'll stand by your poster and you'll hope that someone takes an interest in you and comes oh, over and says hello. That's brutal. Um, I mean, usually, you know, you'll have various people come through for one minute and you'll be like, oh, that's cool and walk by or you'll have people who come by and be like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, okay. But you're basically trying to like stand there and like sell your science to people so that yeah. y- they'll come and chat to you. You're not just doing it for no reason. I've come up with new ideas for experiments oh. through chatting with people and collaborations. So I now work with various people who I've met through these poster sessions. But basically I wanted to make a prettier looking poster. I love that. Um, I love so that. I got into, I learned this like 3D design software and all these sort of design techniques, color theory, all this sort of stuff. So I can make prettier posters oh, and it, it works a charm. Like oh. it works really good. And so I actually get like quite large groups of people who like crowd around and all look at my poster. Oh. And so I just, I mean, maybe it seems sort of shallow sometimes, but at the same time, like, I, ultimately, I want to chat to as many people as I can about oh. the work I do. Yeah. Um, and so I just got lots of questions and people were like, how did you make this? Like, 
and I'll say, oh, I use this, you know, quite complex 3D modeling program called Blender or this or that, and like, oh, you know, can you make like a, a tutorial or something? I'm like, oh, I might do that, I might do that. Uh, and yeah, so I just eventually got around to doing it. Um, I've done a lot of teaching uh, of undergrads, so I teach like first year and third year biochemistry. And so I really enjoy that side of things. And so I was like, well, I can make these tutorials uh, for people. Because ultimately, like, the more people who are better at being able to communicate what they do, I think it's for the better. Um, I'm sure in your undergrad, you saw lots of uh, not, I, not good PowerPoint oh, slides. really irked me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, stuffed full of text that they'll just read off. And then, like, really small figures and also, like, horrible design. Um, and just taking like a bit more effort to make like a more visually uh, presentable stuff is just far better in terms of the effectiveness of the communication. And so I think it's a very important thing for scientists and just really anyone to learn is like a bit of design theory just so you can make um, better looking things to communicate whatever it is you're trying to communicate. At the end of the day, people like to look at things that look good. Yeah, yeah. And that goes for science as well. Very much so. Um, and it's sort of like, oh, but you should love it. You know, quite a few like old school scientists would be like, oh, but you should love it, you know, for the science. And it's, I mean, like, yes, but when you're trying to reach yeah, as many people as possible, you need to speak the same language in as many people as possible. And that's like this visual language of, you know, colors and design and all this sort of stuff. So. I'm very intrigued to see what you've brought along for your fun fact because I don't know anything about this topic in general. So, Brady, what is your science fun fact? Obviously, I work a lot with DNA. Um, everyone, in fact, has DNA. And so uh, my fun fact is about the uh, what's known as the information density of DNA. Okay, I'm ready. So, in, a, in one cell, so say one human cell, we have about one and a half gigabytes worth of information stored in your DNA doesn't seem like much. Well, it, yeah, so it doesn't seem like much when you think about it. But, I mean, we're quite used to the idea of one and, and a half gigabytes. But in, say, the all of the 100 trillion or so cells in your body, that all adds up to, uh, I think the math is around 150 zettabytes. Oh, my gosh. Which is a lot of zeros. Yes. Um, and to try and put that into perspective, uh, all of the information that exists digitally, so, like, for all of humanity, all of the information we have is around 40 to 50 zettabytes. Oh, my god! So, in your body, there's actually more information than exists, like, in the digital universe. Obviously, a lot of your body is the same information over and over again. Yeah. But you can store a lot of information in DNA. And so, there's a lot of uh, projects at the moment in, in looking into how to in store effectively information yeah. in DNA. And the idea is that currently you could basically store everything that we have digitally in like a couple of mils of water that has Whoa. DNA dissolved in it. And so, you know, think of the size of hard drives and stuff we have now. You can compress that all down into like a tiny little like one centimeter by one centimeter cube of Whoa. water that has some DNA floating in it. Do you think we could ever store like, I mean, do we store people like? Yes. People? So oh. there's a, there was a cool paper, like a proof of concept, where they uh, encoded a movie into uh, a long strand of DNA. That's and so, so cool. they were able to, yeah, like write and then read it back off effectively. Wow. Um, so 
what you what we're currently limited by is like read write speeds like how quickly can you store the information okay. and how quickly can you get it back it's out slow right now like relatively compared to say like a hard drive or yeah, something okay. um obviously we're working on all sorts of ways to improve that and there's a bunch of companies um there's one i know twist bioscience they have like a contract with microsoft and stuff to do exactly <laughs> this sort of thing to investigate how effectively we can store information as DNA as like an alternative to hard drives. Because DNA, again, is also quite stable. So you can dry it out and store it away for however long you want. Like we, you know, we can, we get DNA from bones of people who were dead thousands of years ago. And so, you know, if you can store the wealth of human knowledge in a small little tube, store it away forever, like, well, for a long time, then that's a pretty effective like backup strategy. So, yeah. That's crazy. I don't know if this is a silly question, but is there like ethical debate around that? Because where do you get the DNA from? Well, that's a great question, actually. Um, we're actually pretty good at making it. Like not, I mean, I suppose humans are, but yeah. it's chemically it's quite uh, straightforward to synthesize. Cool. Um, because it's basically just a bunch of small blocks think of like getting a bunch of Lego blocks and stacking them one on the other on the other and you just choose like which colored block to put down and you can just do the same thing chemically so you can have like four tubes that have each of the four a g c and t and you add a bit of you add some a and then some g and then some c and then g and then c and then just one after the other add them and that's how you you can synthesize dna that way that's wicked oh my mind is well and truly blown i'm glad (laughs) well thank you so much for being on the podcast today brady oh thanks for having me it was very exciting to be here thank you for listening to the particle podcast you can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au particle is powered by scitech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub that is western australia 